0: The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. This is John Zink, your host. And uh, we're at episode number 32. And I'm honored today to be joined by uh, Mary Hutchinson. And uh, she is the CEO of a pretty special company called Step Two uh, here in Reno. And uh, we'll get into what Step Two is all about here in a second. But thank you for joining me today, Mary.
1: You bet, John. Thanks for having me.
0: So she is married to Neil who I got to meet on new year's Eve when I band was playing and they were out dancing their butts off. <laughs> and, uh, also kids which surprised the hell out of me. You got a 21 year old named Matthew. Yep. How's that possible? Do you have him like a 13?
1: No, it's so funny. I had him at 26.
0: So <laughs> Please don't do the
1: math. Please don't do the math.
0: But,
1: yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't that young. I had him at 26 and 29, the
0: two of them. That's awesome. Then Kiara, is that her name?
1: Yeah, Kira. She's a senior in high school here in Reno.
0: Holy cow. Almost empty nesters.
1: I know. I'm in my home stretch. I don't know what I'll do with myself.
0: You can take care of my three-year-old. Yeah. (laughs) I have
1: told Krista that I would maybe babysit if you guys were in a vine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. But I looked into your background, and uh, I know that you were born in Ketchikan, Alaska. Yeah. So Random. My question is, did you grow up there? Were you just born there and then you guys moved? Or how long were you in uh, Ketchikan?
1: I actually only lived in Ketchikan for two months. But my family moved to Sitka, Alaska, which is where I was raised my whole life. So I um, am am an Alaskan, born and raised. I grew up on Sitka, which is an island. Um, I moved here to Reno at 18 to go to UNR. But I grew up with the Alaskan way of life and the island life
0: that's pretty cool. I've been to Sitka. I've been to Ketchikan.
1: Oh, okay. uh, Great. Most people have never heard of either. So
0: I've been uh, fishing up there on a couple of different uh, trips and uh, Sitka was really cool. I mean, it's talk about laid back.
1: Yeah. Sitka, I think is the jewel of Alaska and not, and I uh, of course have bias because I grew up there, but it's beautiful. It's right there on the water. It's you know, it's not as people think of Alaska and they think tundra and snow and ice and Sitka's not bad at all. It's a rainforest. So it's so green and lush and beautiful. Um, it is cold. We get a lot of rain though, twice what Seattle gets each year. So it is truly a rainforest up there.
0: Well, I was, uh, I've been up there a couple of years with, uh, Caesars, uh, casinos took me on a fishing trip up there okay. and, uh, the first year I went, the, one of the guys that I was with was like, man, I got a sunburn last year. It was crazy. It was so nice out. We get out there. It's raining. The waves are like five feet high. I'm getting seasick <laughs> over the side of the boat. Yeah. You know, but we did catch a lot of fish. It was pretty crazy. And like the eagles and everything else we saw, it was just gorgeous.
1: Yeah. When the sun's shining up there, it really is one of the prettiest places I've ever been. But it's often gray and dreary and just pouring rain. Which sounds like you got to experience. So you got the true (laughs) Sitka experience.
0: I never, ever got a sunburn the two different times I was up there.
1: (laughs) No, most people don't get sunburned in Alaska.
0: So what uh, being from Alaska, what what did your parents do for work?
1: My dad's a bush pilot, which is about one in four people, I think, up in Alaska. So uh, my dad owned a hangar growing up. Um, He worked on airplanes and he is a pilot himself. We grew up with a float plane. So we would, you know, where other families go on a picnic at the park on a weekend, we would jump in the airplane and fly to another island for our picnics. Uh, So we had a hangar growing up um, and then eventually went to work for Alaska Airlines as a jet mechanic for them. And my mom's an accountant. So my parents owned the restaurant that's at the Sitka airport for many years. And so we kind of really grew up. On the airport, because that's where my dad's hangar was as well.
0: So I flew into a few different airports. They usually have really good restaurants
1: or The Sitka cafes. Air- the Sitka Airport actually has a semi famous restaurant. It was famous before my parents bought it. The um, Good Morning America came up and did a story on it because they are famous for their pies. So the airport in Sitka, the restaurant has famous pies. And so my parents bought it and that was already the case. And then when they sold it, it continued to be the case. So sort of a random fact about Sitka, but yeah.
0: That's crazy. So what did your mom stay at home and take care of you guys or did she work the cafe? What did she do?
1: Well, she, they didn't buy the restaurant until I was in middle school. So when I was a kid, my mom was largely home. She, as an accountant, she was a bookkeeper. So she did the books for my dad's company. So and that's couple, where the
0: numbers came from from yes, you.
1: Yes, I inherited it from my mom. So she did the books for a couple small businesses in town while we were growing up. And then bought the restaurant and she was there. Almost. I mean, the air, the restaurant airports open 5 a.m. till 11 p.m. So it wasn't a great life for her once they bought it, but she did enjoy
0: it. That's cool. So do you have siblings?
1: I do. I'm the youngest of three. I have an older brother who's four years older who not only lives in Reno, he lives two doors down from me. He, we <laughs> bought houses <laughs> two doors down from each other a few years back. And then I have a sister one year older, um, She is a PhD, she is a doctor of um, psychology, and she is a professor at San Jose State University.
0: That's awesome. Now, you already talked about the fact that uh, you got the um, passion for numbers from your mom. You became a CPA at a young age. I did. Were were you always into numbers as a kid or kind of... Take, take me back to like the school years, grade school into junior high and high school. Were you always into that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, I was a complete math nerd. Um, I loved math. I, that was my favorite subject from basically first grade on. Um, I actually grew up wanting to be a math teacher and so that initially was going to be my path uh, inspired by my seventh grade math teacher I adored him and I decided I was going to be a math teacher and in fact when I enrolled in college at UNR as a senior in high school, I initially enrolled under the college of education. Um, to pursue being a math teacher, and my one of my very best friends, her dad was a CPA, and so we were, you know, as we were getting ready to go off to college, he kind of sat me down and said, "Hey, I know you love math." And you love numbers because I had stayed with them for a couple months because my family moved and to finish high school. I stayed with them and he's a CPA. And so and I was in calculus at the time. And so he would watch me do my calculus homework. And he said, I know you love math and I know you love numbers. You will make nothing as a teacher your whole <laughs> life. I really think you should consider becoming a CPA. And it was interesting because I'd always wanted to be a math teacher, but both my parents owned businesses. And so I was very entrepreneurial by nature and loved the idea of owning a business as well. And so I thought, well, you know, the path to becoming a CPA is a business degree, and so it it did sort of make sense. So right before I came to UNR, like two weeks before, I unenrolled from the College of Education and enrolled in business management instead with a major in accounting. So I, at the very last minute, switched to accounting.
0: So do you ever wonder what it'd be like, uh, or maybe... Have those uh, feelings like I, I should have went and maybe tried to be a teacher. Not
1: even for a minute. It's funny because <laughs> I had kids of my own and I spent plenty of time in the classroom when they were kids. And no, no, I am so grateful every day that I'm not a teacher, both from, you know, the lack of compensation that we give teachers and also just, you know, raising kids on my own. I didn't need 25 other <laughs> to take care of every day. So No, I'm quite happy with my career
0: path. I've got a lot of uh, respect for teachers and what they go through. It's like, you know, like I said, I've got Johnny, my three-year-old at home, and it's like, uh, I can't even imagine 20 more of them running around and trying to, you know, you're uh, hurting cats, for God's sake, because sometimes I get him, I'm like, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) Yeah.
1: I, I absolutely adored having kids. And I felt with each age, I, you know, this was my favorite age. This was my favorite age. And now I can honestly say 18 and 21 are my favorite ages.
0: It's funny. I, uh, there was a book a while back. I can't remember the name, but I have to look it up. But, uh, this lady wrote this book about the, the morning of watching your kids grow up and realizing after they leave whatever, the toddler, the baby stage, the teenager stage, whatever it is, you have to mourn the death of that because that kid's not coming back. Yeah. And it was so interesting because now I've watched it with Johnny moving from what he's doing now, which he's learning to talk and do all the other, we're trying to get him potty trained for Christ's sake, and that's taken forever. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just like, it was very interesting to look, and we're only having one child, so to look at and hear you talk about the fact that, you know, this is my favorite time now. It it sounds like you've already mourned uh, the passing of what those kids used to be and looking forward to them moving forward.
1: I I will say I have, but this past year, and I'm sure it's because this year, not only is Kira graduating, but my 21-year-old moved to New York City. So he moved across the country um, a few months back. And so now, you know, you get those Facebook memories or I get Shutterfly memories that say, here's the pictures that you uploaded to Shutterfly 18 years ago today or 16 years ago today. And I will say, and with Kira being a senior going through her baby pictures for her senior yearbook ad and for her 18th birthday, we did a slideshow. And, it, it's actually more painful to look at those baby pictures this year than it ever has been. I definitely feel that, oh, they're grown. Like I, I, I miss those years and I do, I miss those little years, but I love who they are as adults. I love the relationship as that transforms into a friendship along with, you know, now I'm, my son calls me nearly every day from New York city and just to chat, he'll call me on his lunch break every day. It's funny as a roommate and his, he said, my roommate talks to his mom once or twice a month. He said, I asked him, how do you cope with life? Who helps you through everything? (laughs) I said, well, Matt, I'm not sure every 21 year old boy calls their mom every day, but I'm grateful that you do. Um, but so now, you know, now I'm an advisor role. I'm, I'm the advice giver. I'm the, you know, talk me off the ledge, help me with my issue with my friends or partners or those sort of things. And then I still have to mom them every now and then, especially financially. But, uh, I think, you know, I miss so much about the, when they were Johnny's age. And then there's so many things that I watch other parents now go through and think, oh, Those years, thankfully, in the rear-room mirror.
0: So did either one of the kids uh, get your love of numbers and math?
1: No, sadly. They both have an aptitude for it, but neither of them have a passion for it. Matt um, is, they're both actually, both my kids are very artistic, which I am not at all. Kira is an amazing artist, and Matt is a cake decorator. That's what he does for a profession, so They have these artistic flares that that did not come from me. Uh, They both tested high on math scores as kids and then completely normaled out, and neither of them have the passion for it. Kira is going to, she plans to study graphic design. So neither of them are going the way of numbers.
0: Well, it's interesting how it all works. And uh, when you get the left brain or the right brain going, Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't really have, I don't really have that many other people in my family that have anything to do with music. They enjoy music. My mom sings a little bit, but I was completely enthralled in playing the drums since I was a little kid. Where the hell did that come from? We just don't know. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, that is interesting. I love that part of your book where you talk about getting the drum sets and. um... Oh,
0: it transformed my life.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. And I, I did a lot of music as a kid. I played piano. I actually played the trombone in a jazz band and went to Europe as a teenager and did that for a while. But I, I can't carry a tune in a bucket and I don't consider myself especially musical by any means. But it's, it's interesting. I watched my daughter draw and she did not get that from her dad or I. So it, it's random.
0: It's amazing when I see people that are great at painting or drawing or anything like that. I can barely draw my name, Yeah, you know, and it's like, that could be a Jay-Z. I'm not sure exactly what yeah. that is when I do my signature and it's just like, when, when I try to, you know, write a letter or something like that, my, my grandmother who passed away, you know, she always liked letters and I would sit and write a letter to her and just sitting there and trying to write a letter that was, you know, um, readable.
1: Legible, yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> was very hard for me. So it's like when I see someone who has that flair uh, yeah. for being artistic uh, in that type of art, I mean, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm forever famous in my family. One of my kids asked me to draw a cat when they were little, and I drew a stick figure cat, and that my family gets no lack of entertainment out of bringing that up every chance they can. That's my artistic ability.
0: Oh, that's 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 why it takes a village. It's yeah. <laughs> all to get together and help each other because it's like every person has what they're good at. And it's, uh it's so amazing. Like with my family, we get together and it's just like, if it, it, somebody does everything, you know, it's like yep. my, my band gets together, my whole family gets together to come and see me play somewhere. And it's like, it's, it's just such a, such a gift that's given to us when we all work together to, you know, do the right thing for each other. So My next question is, uh, growing up, you already talked about one person that kind of gave you that push towards being a CPA instead of a teacher. Mm -hmm. Is there anybody else in your early life who you can remember who was a great mentor or champion that kind of uh, uh, helped you out in your early life?
1: Yeah, my swim coach had just a huge impact on my life. I I joined a competitive swim team when I was five and swam for eight years um on this team and you know as a five-year-old girl you know i was the youngest person on the team initially and just i my swim coach whose name is suha he was from turkey and somehow ended up on our island in alaska as the swim coach and we just had a really special bond he um for a year in there, he had to leave and go back to Turkey. And he had told the whole team one day that he was taking me to Turkey with him. Um, and I believed him. I came home (laughs) and told my mom, I think I'm going to Turkey with Suha. Uh, but just, he, you know, some people just believe in you from, for whatever reason. I mean, I was a good swimmer. I certainly wasn't a great swimmer. I was not the best swimmer. Um, but he just believed in me and, and, gave me a lot of confidence in myself. I don't know. He just is one of those people that really inspired me growing up. And so he's very special to me and he doesn't live in Alaska anymore either, but we're friends on Facebook. So I still get to kind of see him. He calls me by my childhood nickname when he posts on my Facebook page, which um, is embarrassing, but all right. So, what's your nickname? No, nope, no, nope, nope, nope. that doesn't come make on. Cut. <laughs> my my
0: nickname is Boomer. You already know that from my book. I know.
1: I heard <laughs> that one. No, mine's worse, and so we're gonna just leave it there. Um, <laughs> if you do any digging on my Facebook page, now it's do, my job you know, to find out
0: your I know. nickname.
1: You'll you'll find it because. I grew up with being called that nickname in Sitka. And so, and then I moved away and immediately never went by that nickname again. But my classmates still often tease me on my Facebook page about it. So
0: I literally have people back in my hometown who, when they call me John, it sounds weird coming out of their mouth because they either always call me Boomer, Boom, or Boom, Boom. And it's just like, when somebody calls me John, it's like my mom calling me Boomer. I'm like, wow, that sounds stupid. John's the name. <laughs> yeah. Know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, nicknames are hard to escape from. But anyways, all that to say, um, Suha was very impactful in my life. He just really. Um, what What
0: did he teach you?
1: Um, confidence. I, you know, I I don't think I ever was a kid lacking in self-confidence, but to have somebody just wholeheartedly believe in you and cheer you on on your best days your worst days you know sometimes I won my you know meet my event and sometimes I didn't even come close and he just would pick me up and be like on to the next one we got this he just had such a great spirit and um I think just especially towards me you know how sometimes two people just connect and I was a really little girl but he was really great to me so
0: that's awesome I love that kind of stuff I had it reminded me when you were talking to this guy back in Mount Carroll, Illinois, where I grew up, Bud Seitner was his name. And he was our choir director at the Methodist church where I went. And, uh, as a teenager, I was in the adult choir and he okay. just loved the way I sang. And, uh, he believed in me just the way the swim coach believed in you. And just like, I, I spread my wings because of this guy. You know, just yeah. all of a sudden, I, I could sing a solo in front of people because I knew Bud knew I could do it, and it's just like I—I I was pissing my pants <laughs> before, but Bud said I could do it, so I'm going to do it. Yeah, and uh, you know, just remembering those people from our earlier years that just helped us to become who we are.
1: Yeah. I, it may, it really inspires me to be that person for somebody. I am always looking for the opportunity to mentor or, um, for, I want people to consider me somebody who inspired them to be great or better than they were, or that I believed in them. I mean, I certainly with what I do now, I, I have that opportunity, but that's something that's important to me.
0: You graduated from UNR in 1997. And yep. I see from your LinkedIn, you were already working for Deloitte, you know, one of the big four yeah. uh, before you graduated. Did, did they pull you out of school? Did you, did they recruit you? How did you get into Deloitte?
1: They brought me on as an intern for my senior year uh, at UNR. The, they had each year, the Reno office had one intern in audit and one intern for tax. And I wanted to do audit and so I interviewed for the audit spot and I got it. So I started there uh, the summer right before my senior year of college and worked there while I went to school full-time my senior year. And then I, I did interview and got offers from a couple of the other big fours my senior year. Uh, all of the other ones would have been a move out of Reno. And I, you know, I had that opportunity. I didn't have a family or anything uh, I really loved the Deloitte Reno office. I loved the partners there and, and my managers. And so I stayed and worked there for three years total. You know, you have to work at least two years to get your CPA license. And so that was my goal. And I had some great clients here in town and, and I enjoyed it, but I, would I didn't like about being a financial statement auditor, even at a big four firm was you would walk in and some clients would be like, Oh, has it been a year already? The auditors are here. And that's not, you know, really how I wanted to live my life to walk in a door and have people hide from me.
0: So you would uh, talk before about uh, your dad and your parents owning their own business. Were you initially going to look at being opening your own CPA firm or what was kind of, uh, what was your thinking coming out of uh, college?
1: No, I, I didn't want to open a CPA firm. And honestly, my thought out of college was I didn't necessarily want a career in public accounting. And I was pretty, pretty sure of that. Um, but I definitely wanted to get my CPA license. When I started the accounting program, I really wasn't sure if I wanted to become a CPA. I just knew I, well, I might as well get a business degree and, Accounting is very marketable, you know. So I wasn't even sure I want to get a CPA, but then by the time I finished accounting, there was no way I wasn't going to get my CPA license after going that far. And my goal was really just to get my CPA license and then maybe go to work for a business as like the controller. You know, that was really the path for a lot of people out of Deloitte was then to go to work for one of their clients as a director of finance or a controller. And so I thought maybe that, but I, I have always been entrepreneurial. I've, you know, I've had small side businesses that I've done and different things. And I owned a gift basket business in my early twenties, just random side things. So pretty early on, I realized I didn't want to work for somebody else.
0: There's a huge difference between working at Deloitte and becoming the C, even the CFO and now the CEO of a nonprofit. Yeah. So what I'd like you to do is walk the audience through that transformation where you go from working at a big four firm to now where you're at at step two. And then we'll talk a lot about step two after this.
1: Okay. Yeah. It is a random career move without a doubt. And it didn't happen directly from one to the other. So when I left Deloitte. Uh, my ex-husband and I owned a business together. He had owned it when we met. And then I joined him when I left Deloitte um, and worked with him for 15 years. And he is a commercial appraiser. So he was doing commercial appraisal here in Reno. And I joined in with him when I left Deloitte doing business valuation. So he trained me sort of on the concepts of of just kind of general commercial appraisal. And then there's a specific business valuation, a CBA certification that CPAs are able to get that nobody else is able to get for business valuation. So we just thought what a great kind of merging in with his commercial real estate company, because he would get asked to do business valuations and he could do them to a certain degree, but didn't have that piece. And so it kind of was great timing because we had little babies at home. And so I got my certified, um, valuation analyst, um, certification and came to work part-time with him. So I was doing that part-time doing the books for his business and then home with the kids. And so it was very flexible and it, it worked well for many years. And then the kids, um, Started school and they were gone during the day, and I wasn't working as much at that point. The market had tanked, and so I. So what? Right
0: was, around two thousand eight.
1: Yeah, it, almost exactly then. Yeah. Yep, and the, you know, I I wanted to do business valuation for mergers and acquisitions and help business owners. And what I was all I was getting calls for was bankruptcy court, uh, because of where the kind of the nature of the economy and it just wasn't as fun. So so I, you're you're
0: almost back in that same situation where somebody sees you coming in the door like, Oh
1: God. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And it just wasn't enjoyable. And so I phased out of that. And I, it's funny, I was really bored. I mean, I'm just not somebody to be home, you know, all the time. And so I reached out to my best friend from college who actually, when I say I was the audit intern at Deloitte, she got the tax internship at Deloitte. So that's how long we've been friends. And uh, I reached after I texted her like at six in the morning, because I just had been up in the night. And I was like, I need to get a job like outside of the, you know, my, my husband at the time, and I were starting to unravel a little bit. And the kids were in school, I really needed my own thing. So Um, I texted her and said, I need, I need to go back to work, but I don't want to go back into true accounting or corporate world. I would love to find a nonprofit to go to work for. And I really didn't have any experience in nonprofit other than being the treasurer of nonprofit boards. And so I said, I really would like a nonprofit and maybe something part-time. I don't know, but I need to do something. And I hit send on the text and I kid you not, before I even set my phone down, my phone started to ring and it's six in the morning and it was her. She got my text and she said, please don't tell anybody else that you are looking for work. She said, I just had, she was on the board of directors for step two. She was actually the president of the board of the nonprofit step two. And she said, I just had a board meeting last night. Step two needs to let go their CFO. Don't tell anyone else that you're looking for a job. Let me tell them. Somebody will call you today. So- I knew the CEO of step two at the time, Diaz Dixon. And so Candy reached out to him and he reached out to me that day and said, let's meet. I have a CFO position. I need to let somebody go. Uh, I would love to bring you in. So I met with he and Candy, my friend who was the president of the board and then the treasurer of the board of directors. I met the three of them for, I guess it was an interview but it was more uh, here's what the job is. The books are a total mess. It's gonna be a nightmare but you'll get them cleaned up and then it will be a great job and you can have some flexibility. So that's what brought me into step two.
0: It's always interesting how we go from where we were into what the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, has really meant for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that segues well into how you and I met Um, Cindy Carano uh, we were talking to Cindy and a few other people saying, you know, we've moved to Reno. We're looking for organizations to support with our nonprofit called the Shirley Ann foundation. And she goes, I got the place, I got the place. So then introduced us to you, showed us around the campus and step two is just an amazing organization. And uh, it took Carissa and I about two seconds to figure out that yes, this is a place we can get behind. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, I'd love to hear from you, the history of Step 2. Who who started Step 2?
1: Yeah, great question. And we just, this past year, celebrated our 35th anniversary. So now we're on year 36. So Step 2 was founded back in 1986. And it was actually founded by a woman here in Reno. She was a professional woman. And she had a secretary at the time who was battling alcoholism. And... This woman, the secretary was a single mom. And at that time, you could not, she could not put herself in treatment. She didn't have family support. And so she couldn't put herself in treatment without giving her kids up as wards of the state. And that really was the case um, back then. If you were a single mom with no support, you had to give your kids up, you know, into the system in order to go into treatment. And so Step two was kind of born on that concept. This woman, you know, met with somebody clinically and they sort of started a little program. It started just as an outpatient program to help women on the premise that women shouldn't have to choose between being a mom and receiving treatment. They should get to do both. And so that's the concept. And, you know, it, ebbed and flowed in those early years and and they tried different things. And so slowly over the 36 years, we've grown into what we are today and what you guys got to come see here on our campus. But um, it really has been a 36 year journey to get to here. We, you know, we started very small.
0: Well, let's talk about a little bit about what the criteria is for someone who wants to get into your program. Um, because for me, um, you and I have talked about it before, and everybody who's watching this and listening to this knows I, I'm about eight years sober. So it means a lot to me for people to get into and be welcomed into programs like yours. What's the criteria that a woman has to meet to get into step two?
1: Our basic criteria is she has to be 18 or older. So adults were only licensed for adults. And she has to have a substance use disorder. And maybe that hasn't been diagnosed. That's okay. Every woman that comes to step two, the first thing that is done, like they'll come in for an appointment and we do a substance use disorder assessment to see, because most likely if you're reaching out to a treatment program, you need treatment. Uh, You know, most people don't call. That's not a decision. they. It's not a weekend
0: weekend. What am I doing this weekend?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Maybe I'll go check out a treatment program.
0: Yeah. I was going to go party, but yeah. I think I'll go to treatment. Instead.
1: Exactly. Nobody does that unless somewhere in them, they think they have an issue with drugs or alcohol. So most likely if a woman's reaching out, she is going to assess and having a substance use disorder, but we bring them in to do the substance use disorder assessment because we need to figure out what level of treatment not everybody needs residential treatment. We offer outpatient services, intensive outpatient services and residential treatment, you know, that kind of more, the more less intense to more intense programming there. Um, So we bring them in to see what, what are they looking at? And about 75% of our women also have a co-occurring mental health disorder. What we know about substance use disorders and addiction is it often is hand in hand with either an undiagnosed or untreated mental health disorder. And that can be anxiety, depression, um, or trauma. 84% of the women that came to step two last year report a family history of substance use. So most of our women grew up in homes where drugs or alcohol were a factor. So whether you believe in the nature versus nurture with uh, addiction, most of these women conceivably have both because maybe there is, you know, this genetic, the disease model, this genetic component, but also they grew up in homes where that's all they learned. You know, that's what they saw. So we bring women in and we're really kind of digging into their background and their history with mental health as well to figure out, are we the right fit, right program for them, but also what level of treatment do they need?
0: Yeah. And there's such a huge family connection with my mine's alcohol, but it's like, if I look back into my family history, I mean, it's everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, it, it's, so. Uh, the, the thing I love about step two is that you get these people away from all of the triggers, uh, that happen in every one of our lives. Anywhere you go, alcohol is everywhere. You know, if you're right in the right, uh, If you're in the right groups, drugs are everywhere, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, it's really so important to get these people away from all of those triggers. And, uh, you know, when they come in for the first part of treatment, that's a place where it's like almost in a dormitory type thing. Right.
1: Yeah. So most of the women that come to step two are assessed at needing residential treatment, which that's what you're referring to. We have a dorm style uh, residential facility here on our campus, 20 beds uh, and that's where the women live while they're going through residential treatment. And it's about two to three months depending on the woman and her circumstance. Some women come to us out of incarceration, maybe they're out on parole, maybe the judge is giving them the opportunity for treatment in lieu of a sentence, and or maybe she has child protective services involvement, and her kids have been removed, and they're in foster care. So not every woman that comes to step two has the same story. In fact, they all have a slightly different story. And so we really are working through what, what she has going on in her life. So- most women will come in with some sort of entanglements going on in their life. And it's hard to focus on treatment when you're focusing on those other things. So we really uh, have this great resource team and case management team to help take some of that off of their chest and off their mind so they can focus on treatment. So most women do come into our residential program, uh, which is a very intensive Part of treatment. They live in the residential facility, but they're here in the family counseling building for 30 hours a week. So it's a full-time job. They're down here Monday through Friday, eight to four, going through 30 hours of clinical services each week, which I always say to people, if you've been through one hour therapy, it's exhausting. Imagine doing 30 hours in a week. Most of that time is spent in the group setting. We're big believers in group treatment for substance use disorders. And those groups are all the things you'd imagine, like uh, drug and alcohol education, relapse prevention, things very targeted to substance use disorders. But step two is also a very holistic program because we're dealing with women, many of whom who grew up in homes that battled domestic violence, for sure, Uh, substance use, poverty, maybe homelessness, lots of trauma. So we're also really looking at the whole picture in these women's lives. So they're also going through groups like finance group and nutrition groups and parenting classes every week, um, smoking cessation, and then lots of domestic violence, education and advocacy and um, trauma informed groups to help these women what we know for certain is many people self-medicate from trauma or things they haven't dealt with in their past or mental health disorders and so we're really trying to look not just specifically at a substance use disorder but how we can help these women transform their lives for themselves and their children so that they can be productive and stay sober when they leave the program
0: it's it was eye-opening to me when I talked to someone about just what you had talked about. The there's so many people in this world today that self-medicate. Um, and it's 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 rampant all over the place. The the number of people who are driving down the street right now is over fifty percent of people are under the um under the um either on drugs, alcohol, something like that. Um, because everybody's taking all of these um, prescribed drugs. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you have a huge amount of people, um, that are under the influence of something. Um, but you know, this is just a whole different level. And it's so awesome to see an organization taking these people in teaching them what needs to be done. Are they all going to make it? No, they're not all going to make it, but at least they're going to get a chance. And if they're in, if they're reaching out for help, then they actually want some assistance of some kind, and they're looking for someone to help them out. So step two is just a great place. Um, What we have loved when we were taking the tour was after they go through the intensive Mm -hmm. um, rehabilitation in the dorms, there's houses outside that line. There's small houses, but they get to live in houses. When do they get to move into um, the, the houses on the campus.
1: Yeah. The cottages are my favorite part of step
0: cottages. They're not houses. The cottages. They're cottages. Yeah, well, they
1: are technically houses. We <laughs> call them the cottages, uh, a little term, more term. They're the
0: cutest. The they're the cutest little houses. Cottages they really are. Seen.
1: Yeah. They're super cute. It's such a cute campus. So, um, uh, yeah. So when a woman's ready to complete residential treatment, which is that intensive kind of dorm style, Uh, And that's usually two to three months, closer to three months for most women, maybe two and a half. When she's ready to complete treatment, if she has a safe and sober home in the community, she could move back home and then continue coming to step two each day for outpatient services. And we do have a handful of women that do that. But the vast majority of their women that find their way to step two do not have a safe and sober home in the community to move to. And so the difference in step two and the long term nature of it is we do offer transitional housing, which is the technical term for the cottages, while a woman goes through intensive outpatient treatment. And it's a great next step. So a woman is able to move into one of the cottages, and we have 25 of them here on the campus, and they're one, two, and three bedrooms because a woman and her kids are able to move in there. So most women that come to step two, if, they, if she has kids, they've been removed from her. They're either living with healthy family or they're in the foster care system. And while she's in residential treatment, they can come stay with her on the weekends and visit with mom and start to reunify. We work very closely With the division of children and family services cps to reunify uh, moms and kiddos here on this campus so once she moves into a cottage she's on that track then to have the kids back permanently and so she continues outpatient treatment here in our building she'll start with intensive outpatient and it's not 30 hours a week anymore but it is 15 to 20 so she's still in some pretty intensive treatment But she will move into a cottage. And I'm sure, as you remember, because you got to see them, they're fully furnished. So the cottage that she moves into has pots and pans and dishes and couch and beds and TVs, everything she and her kiddos need to live comfortably on our campus. And that's all community donations. So the Northern Nevada community is so generous to us in helping provide that all those items for these women and these kids. And eventually when she completes the program, she gets to take that whole household of furniture and furnishings with her when she moves out. So she moves into this little house that's hers and it's filled with stuff that is hers. And She'll continue treatment, as I mentioned, intensive outpatient and start to work towards reunification. So the kids will come back more often and we're working towards permanent reunification. And then a huge piece of our transitional housing and outpatient program is the workforce development piece. Because what we know for certain is if women leave us when they complete the program, if they can't provide for themselves and their kids financially they will end up back in the abusive relationship that 98% of them have come from in the past and so we really are working on self-sufficiency and self-reliance as well while she's in treatment because that's a big part of staying clean and sober so we are working to get her back to work so Eventually, she'll go through the workforce development program. We'll help her get employment and she'll work. So she's working part-time, she's coming to treatment part-time, she's reunifying with kids. So we're working on things like childcare and transportation. She's paying rent. We're a low-income rent property. So she's paying rent. She meets weekly with the resource team to go over budgeting and her budget specifically really trying to teach that concept of paying your bills paying yourself how you know how you prioritize those things and then she's just practicing life you know she's what relapse prevention might be when you're stuck on the campus in a residential facility versus what relapse prevention is when you're getting on a bus to downtown reno to go to work two different concepts and so we, we have different programming then. How, how do we survive in the real world while still living here on this campus and having the safety net of this safe and sober campus?
0: One of the things that I love about sobriety, first of all, I remember everything. Uh, second of <laughs> yeah. all, um, somebody telling me about when they saw when I got it, you know, and the light that comes on in those eyes and i've got to watch many other people have that same awakening that oh i don't have to do that anymore mm-hmm. and my life is worth living you know those kind of things and you had mentioned before that uh that's something that's very super inspiring to you um i was wondering when i was reading that do you often run into people who have been to the program out in the public and uh, get to see them um, succeeding in life?
1: I I do run it occasionally into people in the community, but I get to see the women who've completed the program regularly because we have an alumni program. And oh, cool. we, so we have an alumni Facebook page and I am the person behind the name of it. So I, get to stay in contact with all the women. I can see their Facebook pages, so I get to watch their kids grow up. Um, I get to see their struggles. I get to see them support each other, which is always neat to see. If one posts on Facebook you know, about a hardship or challenge she's going through or struggles, I get to see this group of sisterhood from mm. all the women she got to know through step two just jump on there and support her, which is so incredible to get to witness. Um, And then we do alumni events about twice a year and invite them all back on this campus and their kids. And so, and we do a peer to peer group every month on our campus. And we, so I get to see a lot of the women um, and some come and volunteer at our events and attend our events and, It it really is a neat piece. And it is so important that aspect of what we do, because we have some really horrible days around here. As you can imagine, I mean, the nature of addiction is relapse, sadly. We never go more than a few months without a former client passing away. Uh, And that, you know, that is soul wrenching for the staff here at Step Two, who, you know, they're not just coming and punching a, a time clock here, the team here at Step 2 and my especially my clinical team, they're here because they care about these women and they want to help change their lives. And so you can't help but get close to them. Plus, we have all these kids living on campus, so we get close to these kids. So, so loss on any level, whether it's death of a former client or knowing that they've relapsed and their kids are maybe back in foster care, those days are painful. And the only way to get through those days is to celebrate the heck out of the good days and to celebrate the success of the women. And so when we have just two days ago, a former client came in just to say hi and check in and let us know how great she's doing. We have that happen often. And we need those days. It it's a good reminder of why we do what we do. But to your point about watching people where it clicks and they get it, I, had no experience in witnessing that or being a part of someone's journey in that way until I came to work at step two. And I almost think that in and of itself is an addiction. For me, people will say, you know, you know, I'll hear about job opportunities or I'll be contacted maybe about another job opportunity. And I always laugh and I say, I am spoiled for life. You don't get to go from watching women change their lives to like selling widgets or something. I don't, I don't know what I would do in another chapter of my life because I can't walk away from how amazing it is to watch these women find their voice, find their power and find themselves. It's so incredibly impactful on me. It, it it feels selfish how much i get from that aspect of what i do and again it's it's spoiled me to the point of i can't imagine not having that piece in my life so i also get the benefit of stalking them on social media you know as the alumni coordinator and getting to sort of bear witness to their successful lives. And, you know, they're not swinging for fences. They're not trying to be, you know, high-priced lawyers. They just want a happy, healthy, normal life. They want to go to work. They want to come home. They want to cook dinner for their kids. They want to take their kids to sport activities. They want to, you know, maybe get to take a family, small family vacation here and there. They're not looking for these rich, glamorous lives. They just want normal.
0: I, I, I know, I know people with a lot of money. And a lot of them are very, very miserable, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, so it doesn't really, uh, the, the definition of success when it comes to something like this or something like the program that I came out of is completely different than Mm -hmm. the American success story. You know, if you want to call it that, because I mean, it rock bottom, everybody's got a different rock bottom to some people it's death. And, uh, when you were talking about, you know, losing people every two or three months and, uh, same way with some of the people that I've came up with in, you know, AA, you know, we lose people. It's part of the deal. Some of them are sober, some of them aren't. Mm -hmm. And all you can really do is learn another lesson from that person, even in their death, you know, and take that and learn something from it. And, uh, you know, and then also, like you said, celebrate all the amazing things. Like, I, I can't even believe that it's going to be in two weeks, eight years of sobriety. Because when I went into, you know, recovery eight years ago, I was a fucking mess, you know, and to be here, to be able to talk to you today, you wouldn't have talked to me eight years ago (laughs) and I wouldn't have talked to you because it would have been a, what what am I going to get out of it? You know, but it's a different life today. Just like so many of the people that step two helps. There's a different ambition, just like this. It's called true ambition. There's something mm-hmm. different going on now compared to when you started out with Deloitte as a CPA. Yeah. And it's so much more fulfilling now than any paycheck, you know? And that's the cool thing about what happens in our lives when, you know, we do the next right thing.
1: Yeah. I completely agree. I, I, This, you know, I've been at step two, this summer will be 11 years and everything about who I am as a human being has changed in 11 years. Even to how I raised my kids, you know, I had young school age kids when I started here and I, I drug them to this campus for barbecues and events and, you know, had them connect meet the women and the kids, you know, at some of these events and it changes who you are to witness um, people make life transformations you know and i am the first to say i'm not a clinical person i'm not the reason these women have made these transformations i'm part of their support system and the support team and but getting to witness that it really does change who you are and And I will also say, I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions about addiction when I came to work at step two. I had no background in it. I mean, I certainly have plenty of my life's been touched by addiction, both in my own family and in friends and friends, families, I think everybody on the planet has, but I had no knowledge of it and I had no, no real perceived preconceived notions. But as far as, you know, I think my default, and I am almost ashamed to even say this, but my default might've been, well, it's a choice, you know, on some level. And wow. I can't tell you how many women I've met who first started doing meth at age 12, given it by their father. That is not an uncommon story, especially in Northern Nevada. And I think who could ever say that's a choice. It's just but not.
0: It's, it's so interesting because you had read my book and when I was nine years old playing Wee baseball, yeah. To celebrate, my dad gave me a beer. Yep.
1: I did I've got, that.
0: I've got Johnny at home at three years old. I can't imagine ever doing that. But I also remember as a nine-year-old, that was one of the biggest memories of my life because I got to bond with my father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's such a weird thing, but I, I got to learn from it. Yeah. And, well, and I uh, think,
1: I think times have changed in some senses. And then also we know what we know. And we don't know what we don't know. And I think as a parent, you know, with each generation, more information comes out, more knowledge. And so, you know, our, our parents did things. That's a great example. Your dad giving you a beer when you're nine on the way home from your baseball game. And that was looked at differently than it would be now. Well, he and, probably
0: got his first beer at six. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's like, well, you are nine years old. Let's have a beer.
1: Yeah. No, I just think, you know, times change, obviously, and we evolve as as humans and, and knowledge, right? I mean, now we know more about addiction and how the earlier you start using drugs or alcohol, the higher chance you have of forming a dependency. It's just the reality. And so, but our parents didn't know that. And we didn't know that, you know, that's something that, you know, thankfully we have people that research this and study this, but.
0: Yeah, my, my mom was probably smoking a cigarette while she was giving birth to me. Yeah. You know, back, back in the, the oh, yeah. doctor's offices back then, they had ashtrays sitting everywhere and stuff. Yeah.
1: My mom, too, while well, they get extra, they x ray their stomachs to see us, which is horrible. And then they were told to drink beer to let down their milk. So, all, all the things. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, one thing I wanted to talk about real quick was the same thing I asked you when I walked in for the first time. You know, I kind of already figured this, but step two uh, comes from uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, just to let everybody know, step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And uh, steps one, two, and three in the Big Book of AA are the most important steps. And step two is a huge one. And uh, you know, I just wanted to throw out, you know, where step two came from. So if people have a, a little bit of a definition of what step yeah, two means, yeah.
1: And it's interesting because step twos we're not. 12 step affiliated in any way uh, at this point but initially step 2 drew a lot of its sort of initial knowledge and, through the 12 step program so that is why the name is step 2 for sure and then now while we're not 12 step affiliated and we you know we we teach kind of the more clinical evidence based practice approach to Um, substance use disorder treatment, but we also acknowledge and support our women to join 12-step programs because so many of them, that will be their support system well after they have completed treatment here at Step 2. So we do bring the 12-step program onto the campus for the women in residential program if they want to. I mean, that's always going to be a choice for them, but so many of them will rely on the 12-step support groups, going forward. I mean, and I know that that's been a big part of your life and, and helped you get sober. And I think that that's the case for many people.
0: Yeah. And just for anybody who's watching or listening to this, if you're dealing with any kind of substance abuse uh, problem, reach out for help, whether it's step two, whether it's uh, someone in your life, someone in AA, someone in NA, whatever it is, if you're willing and, Able to make a change in your life, reach out to somebody because there's so many people that will help you if you just let them. It's so, so true.
1: That's so true. And, and another piece that I would love to mention in case somebody's listening and either is battling maybe substance use on their own or they know somebody who is a big barrier or something that stops people from coming to treatment is the financial aspect of treatment, right? Because you hear about these astronomical prices and costs. And so I always, anytime I talk about step two with the potential of reaching somebody who might need treatment, I like to point out that we will not charge for treatment. Cost is never a barrier here at step two. If you have an ability to pay, we do offer a flight sliding fee scale, but I will say right now, hundred percent of the women in our residential facility are on a 100% sliding fee scale. They're not paying for treatment. Um, Thankfully, we have grants through the federal and state government that help fund that for the low, um, low income population and step two, while we serve people with higher incomes as well, we absolutely are here for the low income population and the underserved populations and nobody is ever kept from treatment for an inability to pay.
0: Awesome, and that leads well into the golf tournament, which is coming up here pretty soon, Mm -hmm. Um, because you guys need to do fundraising for all the amazing things you do, and uh, IT Avalon, Carissa and I's company, was uh, fortunate enough to be the title sponsor for it. I know,
1: you guys guys jumped on that. (laughs) Uh,
0: We had to, so tell everybody about the upcoming golf tournament.
1: I will. Yes. So the golf tournament is, uh, and I'm looking at my,
0: calendar. Uh, it's May the 27th. May
1: 27th. Yeah. It's always the last Friday in May. So this year it's May 27th and um, it's up at Gray's crossing in Truckee. And I believe it's completely sold out, actually. We've sold all the foursomes. We're on a wait list. But we're always looking for raffle prizes and silent auction items. So, you know, we have a lot of generous businesses in the community who are willing, you know, if they own a restaurant to donate a restaurant gift card or different things, you know, we, a large part of our fundraisers are the raffles and the silent auctions. And it's how we raise funds. And every time I talk about how we... We take in women with absolutely no financial resources. We're only able to do that because of the generosity of the community that we live in and people like you guys, you and Krista and IT Avalon to be our title sponsor. So the golf tournament is, I always say it's my favorite day of the year for at work because it's such a fun day up there. Um, so we're always looking for donations towards that event. We still have whole sponsorships available. So if anyone's listening and they have a business and they want their logo on one of the holes on a beautiful golf course, we still have those available. Um, and then, you know, from there we slide in this year, we have a new fundraising event at step two. We're hosting our first ever poker tournament.
0: So I saw that. I saw it. I'm in a cigar lounge here in town and I saw the, uh, poker tournament thing coming up here. You know, the date of that.
1: Yes, I do. That one is Saturday, August 20th. And that one's not sold out uh, yet. It will sell out. I'm sure. Um, and it's going to be a super fun day. We, you know, hired a professional to come in and put it on. Uh, and we're doing it at the new West distributing, uh, facilities here in town. It's going to be a really fun day. So we, we're we selling tickets for people who actually want to play poker, and then we're also selling a social ticket. So if you have a plus one who wants to come watch you play, we're going to have a DJ and food and drink, and it's going to be a really fun day, and we'll hopefully raise a ton of money for Step
0: 2. Now back to some personal things before we end it out here. I like to ask all of my guests, because um, most of us are readers, what's, what's a book that you've read lately that uh, you would uh, consider to be something the rest of audience should uh, take a look at
1: a hundred percent atomic habits by James Clare,
0: atomic habits,
1: atomic habits. And it's funny, you know how, once you hear about something, you see it everywhere. So now that I've read it, I see that book everywhere. And every time I turn on a podcast or TV, I swear they're talking about it, but it is such a phenomenal book. And it, what I love about it is, you know, I mean, we're not, babies. (laughs) We're not young even in our adult lives. And so it's easy to think I'm set in my ways. There's no way I can either change bad habits or add in better new good habits. And this book just really breaks it down and makes it a very simple process on you don't have to go from zero to a hundred. You got to go from zero to one. And you you take the little steps to make lasting change. And Uh, Neil and I both read it. I read it and then gave it to him immediately and he read it. And so we're implementing both, like I said, to help curtail not so great habits, but also increasing things related to health and and implementing better good habits. Um, It really is an impactful book. I highly recommend it.
0: All right, cool. I'll take a look at that. Not the first time I've heard of it, but I'm glad I heard of it again so I can download it because I'm an audible guy. I I am too. I listen to everything. I hardly read anything. It's always in the commute or doing something where I'm listening to something in the gym. But, yep. Uh, nope.
1: I, I downloaded it on audible and listened to it on my way to and from work every day. And on every walk I did and every time I got on the Peloton. So um, that's, it was fun. Cause I did your book on audible as well. And I love it when it's the author himself that reads the book on audible. That doesn't happen often. And especially when it's somebody I know that's the first time that's ever happened to me.
0: Yeah. That was one of the weirdest. I, I've recorded music a bunch of times and it's easy to sing, but to sit there or stand there and to talk <laughs> the whole time, yeah. and your diction has to be perfect and enunciating everything. Oh, uh, It was, it was a long process, but I'm glad it got done. Um, now, you know, I'm a music guy. Mm -hmm. Um, I need to know on your fantasy playlist, what's, what's on your playlist for your favorite music.
1: I have very eclectic taste in music. And part of that, I blame growing up in Sitka without a radio station. So I grew up on whatever my dad was playing on the record player, which was a lot of the Beatles. So I, um, the Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band album I have memorized from childhood. Um, and then I. Was
0: well, that's very, a pretty damn good one to start with.
1: It, yes. <laughs> when I'm 64 is one of my all time favorite songs. I oh, such
0: say. a good song.
1: Um, I'm also a big fan of Here Comes the Sun. Like, just my. I just grew up on that. My dad got me an alarm clock when I was little, and Here Comes the Sun played on it. And to this day, that song brings me to such a warm place when I hear that. Um, but- uh, George,
0: George Harrison was my favorite Beatle. You yeah. know, uh, he, they didn't have a lot of his songs on there, but whenever they did, his was always my favorite. And funny story about Here Comes the Sun is on a weekend, I'll take Johnny for breakfast before the sun comes up. And mm-hmm. then when we're leaving the restaurant, I'll put a Here Comes the Sun on and he'll see, be singing along with it. So I think he's got the music bug. So it's going to be really fun for me moving forward because he sings perfectly on key, which is oh, that's weird for a three-year-old.
1: Oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. clearly genetic then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I went kind of from that to uh, grunge, although I don't know that they like being called grunge, but you know, I was the product of the Nirvana Pearl Jam, which to this day remains probably my all-time favorite concert I ever went to was Pearl Jam. But Kind of that genre took hold of me, and I was really into The Cure and The Smiths and Depeche Mode and all of that, and then straight into country music, which is completely random, but I did about a decade of country music before I left it, and um, I don't know, now I just... I To be honest, I love music. I don't listen to it as often since Audible became a thing because I'm constantly listening to books and to podcasts uh, in my car. But I do still love music. I think my favorite concert I've been to in a while was Pink because I, I enjoy a good performance, and she was a great performer. Um, so, yeah, I very eclectic. I mean, I it's sort of across the board for me. I love eighties music. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your band on new year's Eve. I think that was obvious because I stayed out there and danced to every single song.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a fun thing for myself. And then Ed, who's uh, recording this right now, my the keyboard player and kind of the, the mastermind behind all the sounds that we make. Um, it, it's in my daily life. I do business and I enjoy the business I'm in. But the one thing I've done since I was a little kid was entertain people, Mm -hmm. whether it was my mother, someone in my family, someone at church, someone at school, whatever it was. My job on this earth was to make people happy. And if I can do that on stage with the rest of my bandmates, then my life is complete. So it's like, um, it's it's really my, my wife asked me how how many how many more years are we gonna do this band thing? <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, I'll be in an 80s tribute band when I'm in my 80s. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'll probably still be in the audience dancing and singing <laughs> like, along.
0: <so. laughs> let's hope <laughs> yeah. so my last question is the same uh final question that I asked to every guest of the True Ambition podcast. So True ambition comes from one of the uh, recovery books called The 12 and 12. And Bill Wilson said that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. When I read that about five or six years ago, it changed my life. Because before that, I was ambitious about girls, houses, cars, you know, all of those things. When I realized that my life was actually about helping other people, everything else got a lot easier Mm -hmm. because I'm doing the right thing. My question to you, because you've done a lot of things, you've been a lot of places. What is your true ambition in life, both in your career and in your personal life moving forward, knowing what you know now?
1: Well, much to your point, if you would ask me that question 20 years ago, my answer would have been different 10 years ago. It would have been different, but fairly solidly over this last decade. And for sure moving forward in my life, my true ambition is helping others, but particularly helping underserved women. There is just nothing.
0: Like That's it. awesome. Well, you're doing a great job. Uh, step two is amazing. Um, God puts people in our lives for a reason. And uh, Chris and I felt that same way when we met you and met the whole uh, organization out there at Step 2. So we're looking forward to a long relationship. And anybody who's listening to this, give some money to step two they do amazing (laughs) things just throw it at them because they're doing the right things with it and uh you know that's uh really kind of where i'll end it today so thank you mary so much for joining us here at the true ambition podcast
1: thank you so much john
0: and uh, for everybody out there listening we'll talk to you next week the true ambition podcast is brought to you by it avalon for more information and links to other episodes please visit www.TrueAmbition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be your protector.